Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to be gathered here on the Lord's Day together. And uh, good, especially good and a warm welcome we would like to extend to our visitors and our old friends who are with us this morning. We look forward to speaking with you at our, uh, our potluck together and our fellowship time. And as we continue in the worship of God, we want to turn now to the preaching of His Word. If you would turn with me uh, in your copy of God's Word to John chapter 7. John 7, as we continue our exposition through John's Gospel, we want to pick up this morning in verses 32 through 39. John 7, and we'll focus this morning on verses 32 through 39. Let's read God's word together. John 7, beginning in verse 32. The Pharisees heard the crowd murmuring these things concerning Jesus, and the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take him. Then Jesus said to them, I shall be with you a little while longer, and then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. Then the Jews said among themselves, Where does he intend to go that we shall not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What is this thing that he said, You will seek me and not find me? Or where I am, you cannot come? On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, Let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Amen. Let's pray together and seek God's help. Let's pray. Father, as we've just sung, we glory at the incomprehensible nature of God becoming man, of your Son, truly God, true God of true God becoming true man for our salvation. Father, what wonders we see in the Gospel of John of both the deity of our Lord Jesus Christ that He dwells in heaven even while His human nature was on earth. And yet we also see the reality of His humanity and how He suffered as a man for us. Father, we pray that You would open our eyes to see glorious things from Your Word this morning. As we see the glories of Christ, as we see the rejection of men, that we would be instructed by Your Spirit As each of us has need, Father, You you know each heart here this morning. You know the very needs of everyone. We pray that You would send Your Spirit and that He would attend Your Word and that He would work. We pray for Your people that we would grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. 
that we would grow in our dependence upon the Holy Spirit that you have given to your people to be our helper. Father, we pray for those who are not your people. We pray that you'd have mercy upon them. Pray that you would open their eyes to the reality that judgment is fast approaching. As Jesus said to these unbelieving rulers that yet a little while he would be with them, yet, yes, also we know in our own day that all of our days are short on this earth, that it may be even shorter than we know, and we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And so we pray for everyone here who is a stranger to your grace, that they would flee to Christ while they have breath, that they would find safety and peace with God. Father, bless your people. As we gather around your word, give us great joy. Give us rejoicing in your Holy Spirit that you have given to live and to dwell within our hearts rivers of living water that flow out of our hearts, rivers of grace that satisfy our every thirst and our every need. Father, give us thankfulness and gladness as we worship you according to your word. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. While we're picking up again this morning, the context, you remember, is John 7 is the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. It is a yearly feast that all the males of Israel were commanded to come and celebrate. It lasted seven days, as we'll see. John makes reference to the the final day of the feast in this text we're considering this morning. And we want to pick up our exposition in verse 32. And so we'll break up our, uh, the sermon this morning in our usual fashion, beginning with exposition and then turning to doctrine deduced and how we are instructed by this text. And then finally, we'll close with application. So let's pick up with our exposition in verse 32. And it's at this point I would especially encourage you, if you have a copy of the Scriptures and of God's Word to have it open to John 7 as we see what God is saying to his church here. Verse 32, John continues with this narrative and the unfolding scene. Jesus has already made himself publicly known in the temple. He has caused uh, a ruckus with the leaders. And even the crowds have begun to question the leader's stance towards Christ because it seems they do nothing. And now in verse 42, John report, or 32, John reports the Pharisees, that is one of the, the sects of leaders in Israel, heard the crowd murmuring these things concerning him, concerning Christ, and the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take him. So the, the plan of the crowds has worked. If you remember just in the last section, the crowds were essentially mocking their rulers. And they were saying amongst themselves, why don't the rulers do anything about this man? Isn't this the man that they seek to kill? And yet, look, here he is preaching openly and they do nothing. Could it be that the leaders actually know that this is the Christ? Well, the Pharisees, being the politicians that they are, and um, living... Uh, for the praise of man and not wanting their authority to be disrespected, they now give in to the pressure of the crowds and they send officers together with the chief priests 
in order to arrest Christ. And then verse 33, Jesus addresses them. Then Jesus said to them, either to the officers who are coming to arrest him or to the Pharisees and chief priests, probably both. Then Jesus said to them, I shall be with you a little while longer. And then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. Now, these words that Jesus speaks here carry both a comforting encouragement for his own soul as he's being persecuted, but also on the flip side, they carry a threatening meaning to those who are opposing him and seeking to arrest him. Let's consider the the comforts that these words are to his own soul first. He says to them, as they're approaching him to arrest him, malice in their hearts, he says to them, yet a little while longer... I will be with you. In other words, he knows and he's reflecting on the fact that his days upon this earth in his state of humiliation are coming to a close. The days of the Lord Jesus on earth were evil days, filled with malice, filled with threats against himself. And he says to them, I will not long be in this world of persecutions. And Christian, that is a great comfort. Not only was it to Christ, but us in Christ, it's a comfort to His people. Christian, as you bear up under the cross, and as you feel the exasperation of the world, you too ought to remember and ought to remind yourself that you also will before long bid farewell to all the sorrows and the sufferings that this world of sin brings. Then he says, he says, yet a little while I will be with you. And then he says, and then I go to him who sent me. That is, he will not only soon be done with this world that opposes him, but he will then return to his father who will receive him with all of heaven's honor. Christ, it seemed, especially in the Gospel of John, Christ always kept His mind fixed upon the glory that He had with His Father before the world existed, and He longed to return to His Father. And Christian, just as this has proven true, Christ has returned. He's entered His glory. He's entered His eternal rest. So also, we as His people, Christ has gone there before us to prepare a place for us where we also will enter our rest. As Matthew Henry commented, he said, we too have a God to go to who will receive us into glory. Then he says to them, he says, you will seek me and not find me and where I am, you cannot come. In other words, though you persecute me here and though you seek my life In that other world to which I am going, your evil plots will not be able to touch me. He says, where I am, present tense. And I think he puts it in the present tense, one, either to emphasize his divine nature, which is already in heaven, even as his human nature is on earth, or he simply puts it in the present tense to emphasize that he's already as good as there. 
And he says, where I am, you cannot come. Your persecutions, your designs against me will not be able to follow me there. And so that, that's the comforting uh, aspect in which these words would have comforted the Lord's own soul in the face of persecutions. But as I said, as the other side of the same coin, these same words also operate as a warning to these unbelieving Jews who are rejecting Him. So let's consider them just briefly from that perspective, from, from the unbelieving Pharisees and chief priests' perspective. He says to them, yet a little while longer, He will be with them. That, that's a threat. That God, He's telling them, God will, in judgment, give you the very desires of your heart to be rid of Me. They are so eager to get rid of Christ, to drive Him from the borders of Israel, He's telling them God will grant their request and forsake them by taking Christ from them. An unbeliever, listen to me. Listen, listen to the Word of God here. That is just of God to do. God doesn't owe us the light of His grace and mercy shown in, in the person of Christ. And unbeliever, you need to be aware about sinning continually against the light of God and shutting out Christ from your mind and from your heart because God will not always bear patiently with sinners who willfully oppose and reject His Word and the truth of His Gospel. And He may justly remove from you the light of His countenance. But more than that, He says to them that they will seek Him but shall not find Him. There's, there's varied opinions. You read different commentators on exactly what, what this would have meant in their ears. I tend to lean that what Jesus is saying to these Jews who are rejecting their Messiah when he says, you will seek me, but not find me, I think what he's telling them is that you will in vain search for your Messiah. That you will look for God's Christ to come, but it's in vain that you look for him in another because you've already rejected God's true Messiah. Just as it is even, even with the Jewish people in our own day looking forward in vain to God, for God to fulfill His promise of sending Messiah when God has already done that and they've rejected Him. And thirdly, perhaps most frightening, He says to them that they, will, they shall share no inheritance with Him in heaven where He goes. He says, where I am, you cannot come. In other words, he says to them, you, you will have no right to enter that place to which I am going. And again, note, take, take a lesson from this. Those who have no desire to be with Christ now on earth shall not be with Christ where He goes to be in heaven. Not only will those who have no affections for Christ here be denied entrance into heaven by God because they have not trusted Him, but neither would the enjoyments of that other world be of any desire for the unsanctified soul. 
So he says to them, where I am, you cannot come in your present state. Next, let's turn to verses 35 and 36. Then the Jews said among themselves, this is their response, the Jews said among themselves, where does he intend to go that we shall not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What is this thing that he has said? You will seek me and not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. They are devoid here of spiritual discernment. We've seen this. This is a theme in John's Gospel. The woman at the well was an example. The people in John 6 were an example. They, these leaders, remember, these are the scribes and the Pharisees and the, the lawyers of the law. They have completely missed his reference that he is going back to heaven from where he came to his Father who, who sent him. But not only that, not only are they void of spiritual discernment, they are also, it seems, filled with an arrogance in which they mock Jesus' words. They are like the fool uh, Proverbs talks about who mocks imminent danger. Jesus has just warned them about the judgment that is coming to them. He said, where I am going, you cannot come. You will have no part in the life to come, in the world to come, if you remain as you are. And instead of being frightened, they say to themselves, What is this thing that he has said? Where does he intend to go that he thinks he can escape our pursuits? It's as if they're priding themselves on their authority. There's no place this man could go to escape our wrath. And they even mock him. Will he go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? Now, that... We've seen some of this with John 4 and the Samaritans. You have to understand, this is a, this is a jab. Okay? They're either referring to the dispersion of Jews who live among the Gentiles, or they're talking about the Gentiles. And either way, both of those groups of people were looked down upon with disdain, especially by Jerusalem and the Pharisees and the rulers of Jerusalem. And they're basically saying to each other, will he... Will he go to those unworthy people and get a name for himself there? Will he go amongst the dogs and the swine so that we shall not follow him there? It's very ironic, their words here, because after Christ ascends in God's sovereign purpose, it is, in fact, to the Gentiles that Christ's name is made known. And so, in a sense, they're not wrong. They mean it in a mocking sense. But in a sense, after Christ ascends, the gospel goes primarily to the Gentiles who receive it, while the Jews shut themselves out of the kingdom. And that's exactly what's happening here. Is they are mocking their Christ as they harden their heart against His warnings. And then there's this transition And John turns his attention and our attention uh, to the last day of the feast here. Verse 37. And honestly, if we could have broken it up, perhaps it would have been better to make verse 37 through 39 its its own sermon. But 
such as the way that it, it broke up for me. So, John, there's a transition here. And he turns our attention to the last day of the feast in verse 37. <coughs> Excuse me. He says, on the last day, that great day of the feast. Now, again, difference of opinion. I believe that this is the eighth day of the feast when John says that it's the great day. The number eight, biblically speaking, uh, symbolizes the day of new life, like Jesus rose on the eighth day or the first day of the week. It's the beginning of new beginnings. Um, And in Leviticus 23, God commands that this would be a day of holy convocation for all the people of Israel. And this is the day. Jesus has already taught in the temple, but this is the day that Jesus chooses for His indiscriminate gospel invitation to come to Christ. And I think for good reason. This is the day in which most people would be gathered in the temple. This is the day in which people would then be departing back to their homes and Jesus wants wants them to leave carrying in their hearts the words of eternal life. Notice first of all His posture. On that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and He cried out, In other words, with passion and with fullness of heart, He now implores the people. Not only do their threats not... um, Not only do their threats not shake His courage, it seems their threats embolden His courage. That this is why this people needs the gospel of eternal life. Because they're being led by shepherds who are not shepherds. And Jesus stands up and He cries out because never again in this life would this same congregation be gathered. And by the time of the next feast, many of them would be in their graves and with peculiar intensity, body upright, voice uplifted, He pleads with this lost people. And this is what He says to them. Cries out to them. If anyone thirsts, Let him come to me and drink. His invitation, this is the heart of Christ and the heart of God towards sinners on earth, his invitation is entirely indiscriminate. Whoever thirsts, whether you be king or slave, or Jew or Gentile, or boy or girl, or man or woman, rich or poor, young or old, If you thirst, and what he means by that is if you know your own spiritual poverty, right? When we thirst, we lack. He means you who know and feel in your heart and your conscience that the the blood of bulls and goats all these years being sacrificed for sin are not enough. You who are thirsty for the substance of eternal life that can actually take away sin and can actually cleanse the conscience. He says, let him come to me and I will supply him richly all the grace that he needs. 
Notice, he doesn't drive them. He doesn't drive them, first of all, to the law of Moses. The shadows of the old covenant were fading away. He doesn't drive them to the traditions and the burdens of of their, their leaders and of their fathers that were already breaking the backs of the people. He doesn't direct them to the philosophies of men, but he directs them one place to himself. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Let the sinner come with his empty hands and an empty soul and let him scoop from me the living water which he may drink to his soul's content. Let him come who has no money. Let him who has nothing good to offer. Let him come freely to the waters of eternal life and have his fill. Let him drink deeply of the Spirit of God who brings Christ home to the sinner's heart, who gives peace to the soul and strength to the weak and joy to the mourning and on and on, the Spirit who fills our every lack of every grace. This is the Gospel Christ offers to to sinners. Both Notice his patience. He says this as well to those who've rejected him all week, just as much as he does to those who this is their first time hearing. Verse 38, he says, He who believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, I want to point out two things about verse 38 here, just so we understand the significance here. Two things. Number one, the phrase living water, especially as Jesus is obviously drawing his thought from the Old Testament scriptures, the phrase living water in the Old Testament often denotes the idea of running, replenishing water versus stagnant water. Okay, so for instance, uh, Jeremiah 2.13, God through Jeremiah says, My people have committed two great evils against me. One, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and they have hewn out for themselves broken cisterns. Right? Cisterns deplete. Right? They're not running water. And God contrasts that with Himself, the fountain of living water. That's the first thing. Just keep that in mind for a second. Is living denotes that idea of replenishing. But the second thing is literally, and you won't see this in your translation unless you're using um, the original King James or one of the older translations, maybe the ASV, I don't remember. Um, literally, Jesus says, out of his belly will flow rivers of living water. Out of his belly. And that sounds kind of funny to us. Most translations kind of interpret that, let's say, out of his heart or out of his inner being, his inner man, which is not wrong, but I do think belly is more specific because the belly denotes the part of us that's never satisfied, right? I mean, you think of thirst, which Jesus is talking about, hunger, 
the belly, the appetite. Um, That's why Paul says, speaking of false teachers, he describes some of the false teachers. He says, whose God is their belly. It's the place of appetite and, and desire, hunger, thirst. So put those two things together. Living water, out of his belly will flow rivers of living water. What Jesus is saying is that all who come to him to drink from the Spirit of God, not only will they be satisfied with a, with a, a plentiful, uh, plentiful supply of grace, but they will be filled and then overflow to the benefit of others. Right? He says, out of his, out of his belly will flow rivers of living water. Not just into his belly, but out of. And he's saying that the believer, by coming to Christ, is not only satisfied by the streams of God's grace for his own soul and his own heart, but he will find God's, in God's Spirit an abundance of blessing that they then become a conduit of grace to others. And then verse 39, finally, as we we bring our exposition to a close. John comments here. He says, But this Jesus spoke concerning the Spirit whom those believing in Him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. I'm going to talk about this briefly in one of of our doctrinal points. But John interprets Jesus' saying here so that there's no ambiguity and he tells us that Jesus is speaking here of the blessed gift of the Spirit of God. Not that the Spirit of God has been absent up until this point in the Old Testament saints, um, but that there was coming a greater measure of the Spirit upon those who believed at this point and would believe and receive the Spirit. And Jesus, or no, sorry, John, John ties this gift, notice, to Jesus' glorification. Right? He says the Spirit had not yet been given, for Jesus had not yet been glorified. Whereas Christ is at this point still on earth, still in his state of humiliation, when he returns to heaven and enters into all of his glory, he will then, as the glorified Messiah, having received his full reward from the Father, then he will send his spirit, his helper to his church on earth. A gift from the King of heaven to his people on earth to be the aid of his people till the end of the age. I'll say a bit more about that in just a moment. But that that brings our, our exposition to a close. Now let's turn our attention secondly to doctrine deduced. Okay, so we've seen something of what the passage is about, what it means. Now, how are we instructed theologically? Both about God, about ourselves, about the Christian life. I've got three things that I want to I draw out this morning from this text. And as I said, in some senses, I kind of bit off two sections in one. And so the, the doctrine and application may seem a bit disconnected but such is the nature of the text that I chose. So I think you can all keep it fairly clear in your mind of where I'm getting what. 
But I have three things, and they're fairly brief, and then we'll turn to our application. Three things, doctrinally speaking. I'll give them to you as we go. Number one, (coughs) we learn here from the example of our Lord to comfort ourselves with the near hope of heaven. Okay? And I didn't plan that. I preached on heaven last week. I didn't plan that on purpose, that it would line up with John 7. But they do connect here because of how the Lord Jesus here comforts his own soul in the face of their persecutions. He says to them, I shall be with you a little while longer. And then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. Those are glorious tombstone words. There there are certain passages in the Bible that in in a peculiar way just proclaim the Christian's victory over death. And I think those would be glorious tombstone words of kind of the the Christian's last taunt at death and the persecutions of this world and the pains of this world that I have gone to him who sent me and where I am going you cannot come. This is the attitude, Christian, that the gospel affords every believer towards this world that, as Paul says in in Galatians, has been crucified to us and us to it. Because we, as Christ's people, we are in the world, though we are not of the world. And because we're not of it, we are strangers in the world. And we're foreigners to the world. And because of that, the world hates us. And as a result, if you're a believer, you often feel at times sick of the world. And what a comfort it is to know not only that I shall not always be here in this world, but that as Jesus says here, I shall not even be long in this world. Even if you have most of your life ahead of you as a child and God blesses blesses you with your 70 years, 75 or even more, this life is like a vapor. Jesus here, when he says this, he's about six months from the cross. Christian, children, no matter how long you, first of all, we don't know, but no matter how long you think you have ahead of you, ahead of you, this life is so short in light of the eternity that is coming and the glory that is to be revealed to the sons of God. And the Christian, I'm speaking partic- I mean, to all of us, particularly to the Christian who you're suffering, persecution, um, People are treating you differently than they treat everyone else who just walks according to the world because we don't like what you believe. Christian who's being persecuted, hated for the sake of Christ and the sake of His Word, the sake of standing for righteousness, you name it. Christian, you ought to fortify. What what do you do when that happens? One of the things we do is we fortify our souls with the thought that, you know what? Before long, Yet a little while, I will bid the sorrows of this life goodbye 
and I go to see my master. Sorrows and enemies and sin and sickness and death may pursue me all the days of my life. But when it comes to be my moment when I close these eyelids in death and I fly into worlds unknown, I will be met by Christ who is King and after, gaining, after giving me entrance to heaven, Christ will say to all my afflictions and all my sorrows that are nipping at my heels, He will say to them, where He is going, you cannot come. He is going to the land of the living to see His God where only peace and righteousness dwells. And therefore, take your leave of Him. You've had your moment, and you've had your season, but no more. Christian, how short are the sufferings of this present time? And in light of how near our possession of heaven really is, right? Romans 13, I think I quoted it last week. The, the night is far spent. The day is at hand. We are nearer now to our redemption than when we first believed. How close to our grasp is the heavenly country? That lightens the burden of affliction. I'll give you a faint, I don't know, analogy. I like doing projects, fences, things like that. Bags of cement are heavy, especially if you get the 80-pound bags. If in the middle of a project someone came to you and told you that you now need to carry this 80-pound bag of cement clear across the country, that seems like an absolutely impossible task. And it seems like that it'll be an eternity before I get there. But if all they say to you is you just need to carry this 80-pound bag of concrete across the yard, suddenly your spirits lift and you realize, I can do this. It's just a little while, just a little ways, and then I'm done. And I can set the burden down and I can rest. The brevity of our time here on earth and the nearness of heaven keeps our afflictions in their proper place that they are mere momentary light afflictions. And it resigns in the meantime our souls to God who will deliver us from every affliction in this life. That brings us to the second point of doctrine. That's the first one. We are taught to comfort ourselves with the near hope of heaven. Second doctrinal point. <coughs> Excuse me. We are instructed here regarding the gift of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so this is a theological, more theological uh, emphasis on this point. We're instructed here regarding the gift of the Holy Spirit, or more specifically, we're instructed regarding the distinct activity of the Spirit in the New Covenant age. Okay, John, in verse 39, clearly connects the giving of the Holy Spirit with a specific time and event, namely Jesus' glorification. And Jesus, as we make our way further in this Gospel, will very much elaborate on this in the Upper Room Discourse. When, when He says, I mean, we'll see things in chapter 4, 
13 through 17 is the Olive, or not the Olivet, the Upper Room Discourse. And we'll see Jesus at length talking about how he is quickly going to his Father and going to send the Spirit. And he will say things to his disciples like, It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come. Now, this has left um, not a few theologians scratching their head and kind of um, grappling with these things. Because we also know that the Holy Spirit is very active in redemptive history, even prior to the glorification of Christ, especially in the lives of, of the saints. Uh, so, for instance, I'll just give you so that you know that we're wrestling with the Bible here and not just theological constructs. In this same gospel, we've seen chapter 3. Unless one is born of what? The Spirit of God, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Chapter 6, Jesus says, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. And so... Clearly, what we see in the Scriptures is that from the dawn of time, ever since the fall, the only way a sinner has ever been regenerated and been converted to trust the Lord savingly is by the internal work of the Spirit. Without it, you don't get made alive. Without it, you don't enter the kingdom. Add to that, to make it even more nuanced, um, here we are, lost my place. Add to that, Luke chapter 1, John the Baptist and his mother Elizabeth are said to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Um, Simeon, the man who awaited the Christ and was told by God he would not die before seeing the Lord's Christ, it's said that for Simeon, the Holy Spirit was upon Simeon. Um... So, you take those things, and those are true too, obviously. And we have to conclude, it's not like Jesus is saying here, and John, or John is saying here, like, ta-da, here's all of the sudden a brand new person of the Trinity that's just never been known to the saints before and has never been active in the world before. That would be the wrong conclusion when it says the Spirit was not yet given. And yet, we clearly have to affirm that there is some new something that is being promised when Jesus enters His glory. Otherwise, it doesn't make sense to say, for the Spirit had not yet been given. And I think, obviously this is a much more nuanced discussion than I'm going to give you in the next three sentences, but just to at least nail my colors to the mast, I think the best way to understand this, if you collate and try to your best to wrestle with all the Scriptures, is that as a peculiar blessing of the New Covenant age, okay, and every word here matters, I say New Covenant age because even the Old Testament saints like Abraham were saved by virtue of the New Covenant, though they did not live under the, in terms of temporally, under the time of the new covenant, it seems that as a peculiar blessing of the new covenant age, there is a greater 
more constant and more universal possession of the Spirit of God by the saints than was normally experienced by the Old Covenant saints. Okay? More universal in the sense of Joel chapter 2, which is fulfilled, Peter tells us, in Acts chapter 2, when Joel says, speaking of the days of the New Covenant, I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh. And he obviously doesn't mean by that every, everyone indiscriminate, whether they believe in Christ. He means the whole church will possess the outpouring of the blessing of my Spirit. So, more universal, also more constant. This is a mysterious one. If you wrestle with Old Testament passages, like, um, I'm not going to be able to think of his name, the judge, uh, Samson. I was going to say Samuel. And, and it's like you have the Spirit coming and going, leaving. I mean, Samson was a believer. He's commended in Hebrews 11. And yet you have this mysterious, seemingly intermittent work of the Spirit. But it seems that in this new pouring out that Jesus or John's promising here, there's this more constant indwelling, is, is the word. I guess I should just say that which indicates constancy if the Spirit lives within our heart. He does not depart. And thirdly, greater, in that again, in some mysterious sense, now that Jesus is glorified, the Spirit communicates to the church the power of the risen and glorified Christ who sits in the heavenly places. We can talk about that more. That's all... Sorry, that, I'm gonna, just going to leave you all there and we can hash out the details of that. But that brings us to the third doctrinal point related to the Spirit. I'm not going to totally just leave you hanging there because I do want to, for the rest of the sermon, emphasize this gift of the Spirit. But the third doctrinal um, point here is that we're instructed here regarding the unceasing power and help of the Spirit of God. Okay? We are to read this passage, and by the imagery Jesus uses, we are to walk away with a confidence in the unceasing power and help of the Spirit of God. Out of His belly shall flow rivers of living water. And the analogy, Christian, is supposed to... It's, it means something here. It's not just pointless pictures. There's a reason Christ describes the Spirit's work, first of all, as rivers, plural. Rivers denotes the idea of strength and abundance. He doesn't say out of the heart will, will flow thimblefuls of living water. And living denotes the idea of constancy and inexha uh, inexhaustibility. And what that is meant to do for us, Christian, is it's meant to uh, bolster our confidence in the never-ending, inexhaustible power of the omnipotent God who is at work within His people. And the omnipotent God who has taken up residence in our heart, who is an ever-present help to us. Every single thirst... Spiritually speaking, every lack that the Christian can think of, we have the abounding Spirit of God who can supply to us every grace. 
right? The, the one thing you don't think of when you think of rivers of living water is lack, right? That's, that's the point. The Spirit who can fill not only our own hearts, needs, and desires, but who can fill us to overflowing so that out of us flows a life of grace and good works. So that we can be, uh, uh, we will be seen and known by our fruits. The Spirit's presence will be known in that this one in whom the Spirit of God dwells can be content in what would normally be discontenting circumstances. And the Spirit can supply us with every grace because He takes, as Jesus says to us later in the Gospel, Jesus says, the Helper will take what is mine and He will give it to you. That's why the Spirit can give to us every grace is because He takes what is in the fullness of Christ and He gives it to Christ's people on earth. I mean, just as... Christ has the Spirit without measure. We saw that in chapter 3. So the Spirit has Christ without measure, and therefore He can bring home the whole Christ to the believer's heart. And that's why I believe Jesus says to His disciples, it is to your advantage that I go away. So that all the graces that now reside in Me, and I am with you, When I go to be glorified in heaven, my spirit will take what is in me and he will bring it home so that it is is put within your very own hearts. That's the meaning of the phrase, Christ in us, the hope of glory. Christian, one thing that this means, I guess this is getting ahead of myself in application, but... One of the things this means is we should be optimistic in the Christian life. Christ did not die for His bride, including purchasing the gift of the Holy Spirit, who is omnipotent, in order that His people would just have a defeatist mentality and approach to the Christian life. We should be optimistic, not, in our, not about our own strength, but optimistic certainly about Christ in us by His Spirit who is the hope of glory. And the Scriptures give us warrant for that kind of optimism. Greater is He who is in you than He who is in the world. Jesus will say to His disciples later in the Gospel, take heart. Take courage, disciples, for I have overcome the world. And according to Ephesians 1, and I'll have you turn there just in a a few minutes, according to Ephesians 1, we have the same power at work within us that raised Jesus from the dead. And we are to believe that by faith, take God at His word and His gracious promise, and go forth living by faith in the life-giving power of the Spirit. That's the final doctrinal instruction. Lastly, let's, let's turn to our application as we draw to a close this morning. Application. 
I want to focus all of our application here on this subject of the Holy Spirit and His present supply of grace to every believer. And I have just a couple of things here that I've kind of kind of jammed into each of them several different things, but I think you'll see how they connect. Number one, okay, so regarding the Spirit and His present help to Christians, number one, we are of all saints most blessed to live in the age of the Spirit, okay? We are of all saints most blessed to live under this current dispensation that we live under, the age of the Spirit. Oftentimes, especially in Paul, but we even see it here in Jesus, oftentimes the chief blessing of the new covenant is that it is marked by the presence of the Spirit of God. Read 2 Corinthians 3, Romans chapter 8, and elsewhere. Those are two of the big, big chapters. The new covenant is described in contrast to the time of the law, which is called an administration of death and condemnation. The new covenant is described as an age of power and liberty. Power and liberty. Christian, that's exactly what we need. Because of our bondage to sin by nature, what do we lack? We lack the power to obey God, and we are enslaved to sin. Romans 8, chapter 11, Paul says, But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Will give life to your mortal bodies. Not might, not in most Christians or in some Christians, He will, if the Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, give life to you. Bunyan's poem. John Bunyan. It's attributed to him. He may not have written it, but it's one of those things. Run, John, run. When When he was encapsulating the law and the gospel. Run, John, run. The law demands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. But sweeter news the gospel brings, it bids me fly and gives me wings. And the wings of the new covenant are the living Spirit of God within us. He he comes by virtue of Christ's satisfaction and death purchasing His indwelling in our hearts. And He's the one who comes to our dead, lifeless corpses and puts the wind in our sails so that there is now liberty to run in God's commands. Whereas you think of the experience of the saints of God in in periods prior to the New Covenant, their experience was, I don't know what you'd call it, somewhat sluggish in terms of their experience of the Spirit's power. I mentioned, um, I mentioned 
Samson. Peter's also an example of that, right? He's an old covenant saint. Contrast Peter pre-cross and resurrection and Pentecost to Peter (laughs) post-Pentecost. And it's like the lights came on. All of a sudden, the guy who it seems like he couldn't understand a sentence, he's got a perfect understanding, it seems, of the Old Testament and of Christ's glory and of his ascension and his resurrection and his return, and he's bold. He's not cowering. He's not denying Christ. He is boldly at the threat of death proclaiming Christ. What's the difference? Pentecost happened. That's one of those, and I don't even know exactly how to precisely get it in all its categories, but that's one of those changes, it seems, that comes about in the New Covenant era is it's like the chains on the bike have been greased and the wheels have been greased and we can now fly in obedience to God. And therefore, Christian, not only is it a great blessing to live under this administration, it also has put us under greater obligation to live by the Spirit. Right? If God has given us this precious gift of communion with God the Holy Spirit, who is the helper whom the Lord Jesus and the Father have sent to us, Why would we neglect so great a gift? Why would we grieve such a a helper and friend by neglecting him? That's the first thing is that, um, (laughs) excuse me, we should, uh, we, we are of all saints blessed to live under this administration. But secondly, more practically, Christian, we are to seek to entertain the Holy Spirit. Okay? We are to seek to entertain the Holy Spirit. That was an old Puritan uh, phrase. Not, not entertain Him like amuse Him, but entertain the Holy Spirit in the sense of as we would entertain a cherished friend in our hearts. Richard Sibbs said, There is nothing in the world so great and sweet a friend that will do us so much good as the Spirit of God if we give Him entertainment. Right, you think about it. Who was the Lord Jesus' companion upon earth when he, in the days of his flesh? It was the Spirit of God. Everything he did, he did by the Spirit of God. All of his communion with his Father was communion facilitated by the union of the Spirit of God. And so also our communion with the Son and the Father is by the Holy Spirit. He leads us to the grace of the Lord Jesus. He leads us into the love of God the Father. He is the union of our body and soul to all the divine life. Which is why Paul says, if you don't have the Spirit, you don't belong to Christ. If you don't have the Spirit, you don't have the one who takes what is Christ and gives it to you. You don't have the one who brings you to Christ and Christ who brings you to the Father. Richard Sibbs gave this analogy. He compared the Christian to a musical instrument that is played, that the Spirit plays. Um, You think about it. The beauty of an instrument is not just that it sits there. 
But the beauty of an instrument is the sound that is heard when it is played by another. And just as one plays the keys of the piano to perform a, a brilliant masterpiece, Sib said, quote, let the Spirit think in us, let Him pray in us, let Him desire in us, let Him do all in us. He said, let us lay ourselves open to the Spirit's touch. Christian, we are to seek the Holy Spirit. Not in a mystical sense, apart from the Word of God, but we are to seek the Spirit of God according to what the Scriptures say He will do. We are to pray for the Father to give us greater measures of the Spirit. Right? Luke eleven thirteen. We are to walk by the Spirit. Ephesians 5, 16. That imagery of walk. Every step we take. Every breath we take. We are to do so desiring the Spirit's influence to sanctify my every action and make it acceptable to God. He is the one. The Spirit is the one who sanctifies all of our offerings of obedience and makes them acceptable to God. He enables us to live and to move and to work and to perform duties that are beyond our natural capacities so that we live lives pleasing to God through Jesus Christ by the Spirit. As we close, I'm, get, I'm going too long here, I want to just bring you to one passage and we'll close. Turn to Ephesians 1. Ephesians chapter 1. <coughs> Ephesians chapter 1. We'll jump in at verse 17. This is not an exhaustive passage, but it is certainly a wonderful place to start. This is Paul's prayer for the Ephesians. Okay? And in fact, verse 16, he says it is his unceasing prayer for them. So if ever you pray for people on our prayer bulletin and you see that they haven't give any, given any specific requests... This would be a wonderful place to turn to, to know this is how I can pray for them. Paul says, verse 17, this is his unceasing prayer, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. Now, the, the New King James doesn't have a capital S there. They don't think it's re referring to the Holy Spirit. I do think it's a reference to the Holy Spirit. The ESV has a capital S. Now, he prays that they would receive from the Father the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Christ. And he's not praying that they, this would, that they would receive the Spirit for the first time. Verse 13, they've already been sealed by the Spirit. He's praying for them for the ongoing work of the Spirit in increasing in the knowledge and revelation of Jesus Christ. Verse 18, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened. Okay, Christian, how often do you lack understanding? How often do you feel bewildered that 
I don't know what the will of God is here. What does wisdom look like here? Where are the moral absolutes, the black and whites here, and where are the the issues of wisdom? We so often find ourselves needing our understanding to be enlightened. Paul says, I pray for you unceasingly that the Spirit of God would open the eyes of your understanding. But then he goes on. That you may know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints. In other words, He prays that they would know and be assured of the glories and the joys that are laid up for them in the future, which would bolster their assurance. But then verse 19, He hits a second very important aspect. He doesn't just pray for understanding. It's not merely enough to know the right thing to do, is it? Right? To know the will of God is essential, but I mean, we need the direction of the Spirit of God. But we also need something more. We need power to obey. We need the knowledge of the will of God to be infused with an ardent desire and will to do the will of God. And so verse 19... He says, and I pray that what is the exceeding greatness of His power toward us who believe according to the working of His mighty power which He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places. Christian, what more can God say to convince us that His power in us and towards us is exceedingly great? How dare we say, you know, I know I have the Spirit of God, but this enticing sin, maybe of the misuse of our speech, Lord, I know I shouldn't say it, but I say it anyway. Or the sin of discontentment, or covetousness, or lust, or lying, you name it. How dare we say, such is the power of this sin that I just don't have the resources in the Spirit of God to fight it and to say no to it. Paul says the same power that raised Christ from the dead is at work within you. Rivers of living water dwell within you, Christian. I want to close by just for one minute speaking to the children, okay? So if you're here and you're young, you're a child, listen up. In particular, this part is for you. Children, your parents teach you, your parents teach you about Christ and the gospel, and that is exactly right. And I know that even as children, just like adults, you struggle with the same things we struggle with. And I don't want you to miss this by being confused about this just sounds too complicated for me, okay? So I'm going to make it simple. I know that it happens very often in your life, doesn't it, that what you want clashes with what mom and dad want and God wants, right? You know, because your parents teach you, you know that God says I should obey mom and dad, 
But you also know that often, just like your mom and dad struggle, that often you find your heart just doesn't want to obey God. And so what do you do? Jesus is teaching you guys as well, even at a young age. You can know Christ. You can have His Spirit. Jesus is teaching you here, what do you do when your heart is out of sync with with God's heart and God's command and mom and dad's commands? You seek the help of the Holy Spirit. The same way adults need to seek the help of the Holy Spirit. Pray to the Holy Spirit. Pray and confess your weakness that right now my heart doesn't want to obey mom and dad. That's okay. In fact, God says that's a very good thing. When we confess and are open about our sin and our failure and ask for the Spirit's help and grace, ask for His exceeding power to change your heart. You can't change it. I can't change it, just like I can't change my own heart. But the Spirit can. Ask Him as as you would a friend. If you had a friend who had all the power in the world, go to the Spirit of God, the One in whom all the blessings of eternal life dwell, and ask Him for daily help, moment by moment help, to lead you to Christ, to lead you to the glories of God, to change the the desires of your heart so that you would with cheerful, obedient hearts trust the Lord for His grace and obey the Lord by His grace. Let Him be the first one you run to. Don't just give in to sin. Well, I don't want that. And so I'm going to just go the way of sin and do what I want. No. Say, God has said. He will help me. So go to God. Whether at breakfast, whether... Afternoon play, evening, you name it. The Spirit is always with you. He is always near. And so go to Him for grace to lead you to Christ and to lead you in the grace of God. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that You would impress upon our hearts the innumerable and inexpressible blessings you've given us by giving us your spirit. Father, without your spirit, we have no spiritual blessings. He is the substance of them because he brings to us Christ. Father, so great is your power towards us who believe. We pray that we would believe you for that power more. Help us in our weakness to not accept defeat. Help us to remember that sin will not have dominion over us. Help us to look to the Spirit with eagerness, with quickness, that we would be quicker to distrust our own frame and our own heart and that we would every moment of every day look to the Spirit for help. Be gracious to us, we pray. Father, bless bless our time of Uh, fellowship together, our meal. We thank you for the food that each, each one has provided. Give us thankful and joyful hearts this Lord's Day. Let us speak to one another the word of God. Let us be Christ to one another and speak the word of Christ. 
Lord, we know we have great need. We know our brothers and our sisters' hearts have great need to hear from Christ. Use us all reciprocally in that way to minister to one, one another and to comfort one another. Bless our, our lunch. Bless our afternoon service, we ask. We ask in Jesus' name.